pot is, is, is good at certain times and certain parts of your life. Um, and, and, uh, and I have used it recently and I have tried several ways. What you heard there was a politician talking about smoking a strain of weed named after him. He's called by some the king of cannabis, others call him the pot politician, and his real name is Richard. But most people know him as Senator Tick Segerbloom of Nevada, the godfather of pot policy in the Silver State. The 69-year-old senator comes from a long line of bleeding heart liberal politicians. In fact, a lineage that now has seen four generations in the Nevada state legislature. But Tick is not just another politician. He's one of the most unabashedly 420-friendly politicians you've ever met. His namesake pot strain is called Segerbloom Hayes. I've used pot. I love pot. Here on the podcast, on each episode, we talk about how marijuana legalization is changing Americans' lives. For Senator Tick Segerbloom, legalization used to be a distant dream for a politician that got his start in the 70s. Segerbloom watched the drug war pull into the station back then, but today he sees a totally different outlook for the drug. He's just one of the politicians who's gladly pioneering the new politics of pot. We'll talk to him about what it took to get to this point and what the challenges ahead might be, especially considering that, well, you know, the president has been a little hazy on where he stands when it comes to legalization, which is a tad awkward for folks banking on legalization going full steam ahead. I mean, we are a country that takes substances and we abuse substances. And if you're going to do that, then this is the, the, the least abusive substance out there, in my opinion. Tick's politics career started on the campaign trail for President Jimmy Carter in 1975. After Carter was elected, he worked for six months in the White House. One thing I've noticed about politics, back then, you, you worked hard, but you played hard. You, you really, it was a fun thing to do. And truthfully, you know, after hours, we would drink, we would smoke pot, um, you know, we'd have a good time. And it was, even though it was, I guess, illegal, it was not something that was perceived like it was, say, in the 90s or, or even the 2000s where we were like death and, oh my God, you wouldn't dare let anyone know. I mean, it was pretty common in Washington, D.C. that people smoked pot. Um, and I didn't actually do it, but I know people who smoked on top of the White House. I mean, Carter himself had a guy, uh, Peter Bourne, who was the, his um, drug czar, and he was actually working to get pot legalized. Um, and so we were very close. If Carter had been reelected, the whole history of marijuana would be different. When Carter downsized his staff after arriving in the White House, the fresh-out-of-law school employment attorney lost his position. But he didn't stop his political affairs. He knew, however, when Carter left the White House, things were about to change. Nancy Reagan came along and it became, um, you know, don't say no and, and um, or just say no, I guess it is. <laughs> just say no and, and, you know, just slowly became worse and worse. Whereas, so... It, um, you know, there's lots of people, you, you're probably included, where have never smoked marijuana. It's like, which is a shock to me. When I went to college back then, you would have at least tried it. Let's take a moment to talk about ye old timeline of pot and politics in America, because it wasn't always illegal. And politics and pot were uncomfortable bedfellows at best for a full century. When cannabis entered into the United States, that's Barney Worf. 
He's a geography professor at Kansas University who has written extensively on the history of cannabis. Uh, Primarily after the Mexican Revolution of 1910-1911, it was carried by refugees from the revolution into places like southern Texas, right, and California. Now, having said that, there were other early periods of introduction. There were sailors in New Orleans who were smoking it. There was a small Arabic community in California in the 1880s that was using it, right? But widespread cannabis use was primarily introduced by uh, Mexicans to the U.S. in the early 20th century, right? And the Mexican community and Mexican-American community uh, also then had extensive contacts with African-Americans. The overwhelming bulk of the users were brown and black people, right? And that fact became central to the attempt to make cannabis illegal in the 1930s. During that turn of the century, laws started popping up in states nationwide. Texas was the first state to serve up a whopping life sentence just for possession in 1916. And the future for pot turned increasingly grim. In 1933, prohibition ended in the United States and alcohol became legal once again. And what would become later the Drug Enforcement Agency of the federal government, which was led by a man named Harry Anslinger, that uh, Harry Anslinger and his his group decided, my God, what are we going to do with alcohol legal? We don't have a reason to justify our, our agency anymore. And they seized on cannabis as the new demon. In 1937, pot became illegal on a federal level. And so the rest is modern history. Nixon commissioned a report that determined cannabis was relatively harmless, though he rejected it. And the Reagan administration continued the crusade. respect to, to marijuana particularly, it just totally flipped from, is it going to be an acceptable thing um, and decriminalizing it and, and not putting people in jail and let it be a, their own choice to, like, heroin. Um, and then the, the war on drugs and the, and the cops got involved and the, and the DEA got involved and, you know, just the, and then it became used either intentionally or unintentionally to, to really stigmatize minority populations. So... Uh, the amount of, of, of African-Americans who were criminalized because of some kind of a marijuana possession is just embarrassing for the country, really humiliating. But anyway, we destroyed a lot of lives between 1980 and, and 2010, probably. Um, it, it just was, was terrible. But at but the, but the same time, there was um, an undercurrent of people who, from the 60s and 70s who had used it, continued to use it, uh, realized that it was a, something that, that, that used for, to relieve stress or whatever, and um, they kind of kept a constant. And, and so when, for example, in 2000, when we had the vote um, to put in a constitution for medical marijuana, that thing passed almost 70% in Nevada. So, I mean, there, there's, there's been this, this general perception by the public that you know marijuana itself is not bad, but the politicians were like death on it. During the 80s and 90s, Tick kept himself busy as an attorney, but also stayed heavily involved in the Democratic Party. 
He lived in California for a time, but moved back to Nevada, where he'd grown up outside of Las Vegas. I, I, I really didn't pick the state because of marijuana. You know, again, it was for that for a long period of time. I didn't use it, and you know, it was one of the things where you were afraid to use it because you know you get busted, and you know, it's a, it's a big time offense. So, um, but the reality is, it's it, it's fun to be a, a big fish in a small pond. And having been in D.C. and been in California and been really, I've campaigned all around the country. Um, first, we're a very political state, so we're, politics is far beyond our size. But it also is just a very small community. And so you can, I think one person can make a difference. And this is an example. Again, it's like you, you try 100 things and 99 of them fail, but, but the one that hits, it, it, it hits. In 2007, he was elected to the Nevada State Assembly to represent one of the Vegas districts. When I came into the legislature, I saw a couple of sessions where people had tried to come up with a bill to have medical marijuana program where you could have dispensaries, and, and the leadership, the Democratic leadership, wouldn't even let them have a, a hearing on it. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, again, shocking just given... Wouldn't my, let you have a hearing, or...? Well, the, the people that had sponsored the bill, I was not sponsoring those bills. Oh, okay. I, I would co-sponsor them or, or support them, but I wasn't really the lead person. In 2013, he became a state senator, his current role, and that's when he started really pushing for pot. I thought, um, at this point, I had had enough background. These people had tried to to get these bills going. Uh, Colorado and Washington had both um, passed recreational and their their voters. And I said, you know, I'm going to put my name out there and and really lead this thing. Because I always thought it was kind of people that didn't have a lot of... um, uh, leverage um, or visibility in the legislature that we're trying to push this stuff. So they were easy to, to set aside and say, you know, we're not going to consider you. So I thought, I'm going to put my name out here and see what happens. Just kind of, I mean, not a lark, but but it just seemed like the time was ripe. And I said, no way in hell this is ever going to happen. You know, the, you know, the history of Nevada. And uh, the reality was um, there was no opposition. Tick was at the helm of the POT platform, a powerful poster child behind a team of 420 policy advocates. Tick and his team pushed Nevada to finally open dispensaries in 2014, 14 years after it had legalized medical marijuana. Meanwhile, a whole team was already working on the ballot initiative that Nevada voters would pass in 2016. On January 1st, 2017, recreational POT became legal in Nevada. Well, it was kind of like giving birth. I mean, it's, you can't get too excited about it because, again, you're not the... Everybody wants to give me credit, but the reality is there's you know, hundreds and thousands of people that have been real active in this. But it is pretty amazing when you consider where we have been to get to where we are. And you look at gay marriage, you look at things like that, social changes that just overnight um, the country flips. And then to think that, that all my life... Uh, even at a time when, you, when I, we were using it um, and not worried, it was illegal. And then all of a sudden, literally, you could buy a product and use it and, and not feel like you're doing anything wrong. Six months after weed became fully legal in Nevada, dispensaries kicked off sales of their first recreational products. The lines were around the corner, filled with stoners, veterans, first-time users, parents with their adult children, and even tourists. I was there. It was definitely a sight to see. The reality is we had created with our medical program basically essentially a, a recreational program. So all we had to do last July was flip a switch and, and you could start selling recreational. There's no, no need for anything else. Um, and then the, and the governor, to his credit, you know, we had 
other states, when they went from medical to recreational, they had two separate inventories and two separate this and that's. And um, so we were proposing to, to combine the things, but he just took the bull by the horns and, and appointed Dion Conti there, and, and she just went, ran, went crazy. Since Tick has become the guy in the Nevada legislature for the cannabis agenda, during the 2017 summer session, it seemed every bill that he put on the table was about pot. Some colleagues poked fun at him. He's the senator who cracks jokes all the time, wears sneakers to the hearings, and always has a green tie on cannabis days. But one by one, a lot of his bills made it through and became law. He sponsored a bill allowing Native American tribes to open dispensaries, another to restrict companies from advertising marijuana to children. He made medical cards more accessible, helped create the state's tax structure, helped to create state regulations, and wrote in language to encourage more diversity in the industry. Did you have any um, moments where you were ostracized at all for going into this territory? And two, were you surprised by the people that were opposed or supportive at any point? Not really. That's the, the fun thing for me is that there really has not been, I mean, I've been stigmatized on the pot guy, whatever, but there's been no negativity toward that. I mean, it, it, everybody makes jokes about it. You know, I, I have brownies. I put them on people's desks at the 420. Um, but it's it's a very light natured. But but it's really never been personalized or he's crazy or he's he, he his mind wanders or you know whatever. So I mean, in that sense, it, it's it's been a very positive experience, which is surprising. And the flip side is that that. I really am recognized for it, even though I'm kind of getting credit for a lot of other people's work. But um, it, the people go up to me and, and valet parkers or whatever, they always saw on TV, and it's always very positive. You know, I'm sure the people out there that hate me, but they don't come forward. Because Tick feels that he's seen through most of the changes he wanted at the state level, he's now running for a seat on the commission for Clark County, the county which Las Vegas calls home. He wants to make more change, this time at the ground level. I, I do think that there's a level, there's a role to be played at the local level. I think at the state level, we've pretty much done what we need to do. So now it's really a question of implementing it, and that's going to be, you know, the pot lounge or the concert or the Amsterdam Street or whatever. But when he talks about pot lounges, these would be spaces where people can smoke in an area other than a private residence, maybe a concert or hotel or restaurant. We, there's got to be a way that we can create ordinances, have people, invite people to, to come up with their ideas, uh, and then do model cases or test cases and say, okay, we're going to try this one, we're going to try that one, and see what happens and, and experiment. But um, to say, oh, we're not going to do anything, we're just going to let people, encourage people to come here and, and buy it and then say, oh, by the way, you can't use it, uh, that to me is, is, is crazy. That's the final uh, frontier where you can actually go out and go to a concert and sit there with other people that really want to use it and you're all like this is great and you don't have to worry about the cops coming in and busting you out or anything it's just like true, true freedom and it can't be that far away the other dragon that politicians are struggling to slay is money how to deal with money that comes from marijuana businesses most banks, because of federal oversight, will not knowingly touch marijuana money. Marijuana businesses talk about their accounts getting shut down repeatedly because of the risk on bankers' part. This has become a major passion point for Tick, his next hurdle to jump. 
Well, that's you haven't heard it yet, but maybe we can leak this. We, we're um, the next couple of weeks. We're going to have a one of our campaign pledges that the county is going to create a bank, a marijuana bank. The county is yeah. going to. How does that work? Do don't know yet. Don't know yet. <laughs> but you know, again, how hard can it be? We we open up a a, a bank or or even just a, a store like this, and if you're a marijuana business, you can bring us your cash, and we'll give you a county check. Um, so you have something you can take to a bank and deposit it. And we could even have a um, Brinks Armored car that would go pick up your cash and give you a chit at the same time. So you could then take that to your bank. You but, but here's what's so crazy. Right now, these guys cannot bank, right? So they, they, they have $100,000 in taxes. They, they carry $100,000 down to the state office building, give it to the state. The state takes that 100000 and walks over to Bank of America, uh, and, and deposits it in their account, and, and Bank of America is fine. So, I mean, what's wrong with that picture? Whatever it is, but I mean, there's there, there's a way to do it, and we just got to keep experimenting. But you can't have this much cash running around. It's not healthy for anybody. It's not safe. And plus, you know, when you got cash, you you worry about losing revenue because it's so easy to divert, you know, hundred bucks or hundred bucks there or whatever. So, not I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but it's just. It's it's crazy not to have banking system, and if it, if we don't have one by the time I'm in office, we're going to have one. Aside from being a security risk, the cash side of the marijuana business is daunting even for a second-tier investor. Some banks won't even open accounts for businesses such as billboard companies, construction companies, the people that put in light bulbs in their businesses. I mean, where do you draw the line? I was curious how Tick dealt with the donations he'd received on his campaign trail. People seem to feel weird about taking money Kind of, sometimes. Do you, uh, do you think so? I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm just you know tonight I'll probably get twenty thousand dollars in cash and contributions. What he's referring to is while I was visiting Tick in Vegas, we went to a fundraiser for his county commission campaign. It was a swanky affair. On the Snoop Dogg, Martha Stewart scale, it was way more Martha. Held at a private home in a double gated golf course community south of Vegas. Tick wasn't kidding. There was a lot of money in that room, most of it from the pot industry. These were folks who had dollars to spend on their future. Tick, in their eyes, might be the golden child to help them secure that future. Look, at Tick is freaking unbelievable. You can use the word freaking if you want. <laughs> you know, getting to meet Tick, he really means what he says. Uh, it took Tick uh, writing legislation and pushing it through. And if it wouldn't have been for Tick, we wouldn't even be... Be, be able to think about this. So that was never a thought on your campaign trail, like accepting money from. No, I mean, we're the great. One of the great things about being an elected official is we can take cash. We have to report it, but we can take cash. Federal federal candidates can't take cash. It's, yeah. I'm sure a lot of states can't, but we can take uh, up to ten thousand dollars in cash, and it's 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 great. You know, you take it out of the bank, and they give you immediate credit. They don't put a hold on or anything. <laughs> Have you ever had a conversation with the feds or? No, I've been called, <laughs> oh, do you think I should take this cash? <laughs> Mr. Sessions, what do you think? I, I don't think so. I mean, some, sometimes you don't want to ask. Yeah. In case you didn't already know, Sessions is a reference to U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who has made it crystal clear that as the head of the Department of Justice, he takes issue at least with the recreational use of marijuana. 
One of the most difficult pieces of pop politics more recently has been knowing where the current White House administration stands on the issue of pot. Since 2014, states that have legalized marijuana have been operating under guidance from a U.S. Justice Department memo stating that federal authorities would not interfere with state-regulated marijuana industries. In other words, states, you get the upper hand here, as long as they were following their own state's rules. It was just guidance, though, not law. And in January 2018, the Justice Department issued another memo that essentially overrode the Cole memo. A lot of states freaked out temporarily. But Tick is undeterred. He believes that most Americans are on the same page and won't let Sessions halt the industry. Very few people have never touched marijuana. You know, so most of them, from personal experience, know that it's not an evil drug. And even though they're having fun and trying to make money, they're also just having fun because it, 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 it kind of uh, sends them back to their youth and also you know, sends a message that, you know, the government has been wrong all these years. I mean, it's just unbelievable, the, the lies that we've been told. Still, we cannot forget that Tick is a politician. He gets a hefty amount of his fundraising from the pot industry. He's on a Canadian cannabis company board and makes 7500 bucks a quarter from them. And it's now kind of cool to be cannabis friendly in politics. A total turnabout from his political days in the 70s. He's also Nevadan, which makes him kind of a gambler, at least in the political sense, and a do-what-I-want kind of a guy. Do you think every state at this point is ready for legalization? or there? No, and that's the great thing. That's why Nevada, if we, if we don't dick around here and dilly-dally, uh, if we jump on this thing, we can make ourselves the place to come and the model, and then like gambling, eventually it will reach out and other states will take it. But uh, we really have the chance to to be, I think, just like gambling, we're going to be the, the model place to be, and, and people will think of us as, when you think of marijuana, you think of Las Vegas, just like you think of gambling, you think of Las Vegas, even though now gambling's everywhere. When I asked Tick whether he felt like weed was going to be his legacy in Nevada, he seemed a bit ambivalent. On the one hand, he feels kind of like he fell into it, because after all, he did enjoy weed, and he wasn't afraid to say it. At the end of the day, though, he looks back at the 70s and is proud to have been part of the slow roll of marijuana legalization into American and Western politics. The way he looks at it, at least he has a legacy. Yeah, I mean, it really, it's one of those things where you fall into something accidentally uh, and then you just ride with it. And, and um, so, so far I'm still on the wave and so I'm taking advantage of it. I do think for Nevada, it is perfect. I mean, we, we, we need the transition. Um, away from our old economy to a new economy, or at least to make sure that the millennials keep coming. And I think marijuana fits perfectly in that, and I'm very determined to make sure that we are viewed as the place, the leadership place. So take that away from Denver, and you know, when people around the world think about marijuana, they're going to think of Las Vegas, just like they thought of gambling when I was growing up. So I do think that's important for Nevada, just as an economic thing, and, and which really is for taxes. But I, I, th- I think it just, it is. I mean, just to me, this is Nevada. I mean, we may try to sanitize it and, um, and make us like uh, Silicon Valley or, or Salt Lake City or whatever, but, but the truth, if you look at Nevada's history, we have always been just desperate. You know, we, anything we can do to bring people here, we will do it. So we start out with, with um, minors and prostitution and then um, quickie divorces and gambling, but... But that's just who we are. We are very libertarian streak to us. Um, and then we take that and capitalize on it and invite people around the world to come here and spend their money. We, and we fleece them, essentially. 
So it just seems to me that that's just so characteristic what we do. And this is the last major vice um, out there that, that it just seems like crazy not to take advantage of it. Thank you guys so much for listening to The Podcast, a product of the Reno Gazette Journal and the USA Today Network. I'm your host, Jenny Kane. Shout out to my editors, Kelly Scott and Brian Dugan, who edit this show. And Brian also interviewed Professor Worf. Of course, thank you, Tick and his staff who made time for us at Tick's office, where he has a golden peanut on his desk as an ode to his time with President Carter. Also, thanks to the Bernstein family, which allowed us access to Tick's swanky fundraiser, even though they really did not want us there. I get it, I'm a nosy reporter. Anyways, thanks. We also owe a nod to Shannon Green, our mentor back at the Mothership Paper, USA Today. If you guys want more of the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. It would make us feel all warm and fuzzy, and it would help us to know how to better serve you. If you want to reach out to us, drop a line at podcast at gannett.com. That's P-O-T-Cast at G-A-N-N-E-T-T dot com. Or message us on Facebook or Instagram at the Podcast Podcast page. Definitely do not miss next week when we interview a farmer, an environmentalist, and a trimmigrant. That's someone who cuts weed on a pot farm. About how legalization is having an impact on America's marijuana mecca, the Emerald Triangle. It's people that go really sad from here. It's people that go really happy. But I think though, like, I don't know, in the worst farm I was in my life, I met the best people. If you want more politics in general, check out USA Today's Cup of Politics podcast. It's all about dissecting Politico and getting to the bottom of all this hoopla in Washington. That's all for today's episode. We'll talk to you next week.